Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Yahoo Sports College Podcast. This is Pete Thamel. Senior reporter for college sports for Yahoo with a very special podcast guest today. I'm with Texas basketball coach Shaka Smart here at the University of Texas in Austin. Shaka, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Pete. So, Shaka, you and I first met probably about 10 or 12 years ago at a subway in Akron, Ohio. We were there for the LeBron James Skills Academy back when uh, back when it was all the rage the first week of recruiting. You were with Dave Tellup, our friend, who is uh, now one of the head scouts for the San Antonio Spurs. He was a recruiting analyst at the time. And uh, I always sort of associate you with Akron in that. And part of our podcast today, we want to walk through a little bit of your coaching career and, and what got you here to Austin. And we'll talk about the Longhorns uh, as well. But I know that that time in Akron, and especially Keith Dambro, who's now the coach at Duquesne, was a particularly strong mentor and figure in your life. I wonder if you could walk me through that avenue of, of your coaching career. Actually, when I met you, Pete, I had moved to Clemson. Uh, but I did work at Akron uh, for three years as an assistant coach, actually first under a guy named Dan Hipsher, who was a very good head coach, and then Keith Dambrock got the head coaching job. And I loved it there. Uh, in retrospect, it was probably my most important stop just because I met my wife <laughs> in Akron. She's from there. And got a chance to work with some really, really good players and, and uh, just be a part of a, a pretty neat coaching staff. That was, for me, my first time at the Division One level being an assistant coach and then, as I mentioned, I moved from there to Clemson. So your first day at Akron, you probably don't know the staff particularly well. Keith Dambrot's an assistant coach with you. Um, you just meet him. Walk me through how you spend your first afternoon as a ZIP staff member. Yeah, you know, this happened long ago, but I, I, I guess I told someone in passing, and now a few people have heard about it, so I've been asked about it a lot lately. Uh, Keith was an assistant at the time, but as you know, he had – coached LeBron James for his first two years at Akron St. Vincent St. Mary High School which is literally like eight minutes away from campus and so I didn't know Keith at all when I got the job but he had this warm spirit about him right away I could tell he was going to be someone that would be a good mentor for me and someone that, that I'd get really get along with really well so he came into my office right before lunchtime and he said come on I want to introduce you to someone we got in his car, we drove to a local rec center gym, 
and we went out there on the court and there was really no one out there because it was the middle of the day. All the kids were in school and a Hummer pulled up outside and I could see through the window. It was LeBron James and he's 18 years old. This is May of his senior year. He gets out, he comes in, he walks out onto the court and Keith says, come on, we're going to work out LeBron. And so at that point I was 26 years old. I'd never obviously coached or worked with anyone anywhere near that talented. So uh, I'd seen him play a couple times live and on TV before and knew that he was, you know, as good as any player at that age that I'd ever seen. I didn't know, obviously, that he would become, you know, what he's become now. And really for the next several weeks, uh, we proceeded to put him through workouts, getting ready for NBA Summer League, Uh, It was really Keith leading the workouts. I was just a young guy helping out, rebounding or passing. But it was fun to be in that situation because he got a chance to learn a lot from a guy that has ended up even exceeding expectations and becoming one of the best players ever. And now we should just feel old because we were sitting in gyms like as his son was playing AU games in uh, in Vegas this uh, this July. Let, let's ask one more question about Keith because he's a really interesting figure to me. When I first started, we're the same age. When I first started covering college basketball, I knew him because he was coaching at St. Vincent St. Mary, and then obviously he he rose and replaced Hipshire at uh, at Akron, and he had maybe one of the best runs as a head coach in the history of the MAC when he was when he was there. I mean, it was it, that's a very difficult league to be consistent in because it's just so even nobody really has like a distinct advantage one way or another um and he's at he's at duquesne now trying to turn around a program that really hasn't won in two decades and it'll be interesting to see if he can have the same success that he had at akron there but put his career in perspective and maybe as the further you've gone and climbed up the ladder has your appreciation grown for keith well, first of all, he's probably of the guys that I've been around and worked with or worked for. He's a guy I'm closest with. He called me earlier today and he he was in a panic and he said, "I need someone in the city of Richmond that does dry needling." And I said, "Okay, I I, I got you covered." His Keith's son is a soccer player who happens to have an injury. He needs some dry needling done. So I made a couple calls and we helped him get that done. But we have that kind of relationship and we always have. The thing about Keith as a coach is if you went and watched him coach a practice, put games aside for a second, just coach a practice, and then you compared his practice to the practices of some of the all-time greats that are still coaching or some of the guys that are, that are in the Hall of Fame – if you didn't know who was who, you would put Keith right up there uh, with, with those guys. And obviously a lot of it's about players. Uh, the better players you have, the more games you win, the higher level you get to go to. And when he had LeBron, obviously he won big. He won a state championship both years when he had him. But when you go just straight meat and potatoes basketball coach, he's as good as I've seen. I remember once at the LeBron James Skills Academy, I happened to be sitting next to Keith in the in the bleachers. It was at the is it the Jar, uh, the, the the there, and uh, I knew Keith a little bit. And LeBron happened to walk in, and he just said to me, he "Goes watch, he's going to come over and hug my wife." And like you know, obviously it's LeBron James in his prime. He walks over, calls her by name, which I don't remember right now. Kisses her on the cheek, says hello to Coach Dambrot, and I was like, "Oh, there was clearly like a really strong uh, a strong respect level there." Well, that was. A, an early point in your career, but you really got your start playing at Kenyon College after growing up in Madison, and then uh, you started at uh, California University, Pennsylvania, 
under uh, under Bill Brown. Uh, what do you what do you remember about those days? We might wind this back to Subway because I think that's what you ate for the most part when you were there. I did. So I played Division three basketball at Kenyon. I was recruited by Coach Brown, Bill Brown, who you mentioned. And unfortunately, one of the worst days of my playing career was the day when he called and said he was leaving. Uh, and it's it was for me, I'd gone to school there to play for him. He was a father figure for me. I didn't really have a dad that was a positive part of my life. Uh, but the one positive of him leaving was he told me that when I got done playing, I could go work for him if I wanted to get into coaching. And he really planted a seed in my mind. I, I never really had thought much about coaching up to that point. But really after he planted that seed, because his opinion was so strong uh, for me, that's what I ended up doing. I graduated from college, and later on that summer, there I was in California, California, Pennsylvania. It's one of those places that if you didn't have a map or you didn't have a reason to stop there, you would never know it exists. When I was there, I believe there was one stoplight, and I did eat at Subway. Uh, technically, I went to Subway once a day, but I would buy a foot-long sub. At that time, it was a $4 foot-long, not a $5 foot-long. And I would eat half for lunch and half for dinner just because as a GA, I was making $90 every two weeks. So I had to stretch that out. If you can believe it, Pete, I lived in an apartment where my rent was $150 a month. I mean, you can imagine how nasty that place was. But I loved it. I was just so happy to be in coaching and be working with guys. And at the Division II level, there's not a huge staff. So even as a graduate assistant, you get a chance to do workouts and scouting and game planning and recruiting. And Coach Brown gave me an opportunity to do all those things. I would imagine that your best win at California, Pennsylvania ranks up with your best win at Texas and your best win at VCU or Clemson. Walk me through. What do you remember about the best win you had there? That's easy. I can tell you the best win because it was the very first game that I got a chance to be a part of as a college coaching staff. We were playing at the Wide World of Sports uh, down at Disney World. There was a Division II tournament down there with eight teams that had all been a part of the NCAA tournament the year before. And we happened to open up with Metro State out of Denver, Colorado, who was the number one team in the country. They had two kids that were foreign players. One was from Australia and I believe one was from Mexico that were easily mid-major or better Division One players. Uh, but they had recruited them to Metro State, and we were able to win that game. In fact, Mike Dunlap was the coach of Metro State at the time, and obviously he's gone on to do some t- tremendous things in the NBA and in college. But unfortunately, that was the first game. We never had any wins quite that good after that. Um, I, I want to follow up on Keith because you had said he was as good a practice coach uh, as you, you've ever had. A, a lot of coaches tend to listen to these podcasts because they see him on Twitter. What is one practice tenant you took from Keith Dambro at Akron that you still use today or you think separates him? I mean, if he's that good of a practice coach, I'm curious of an example. Well, his attention to detail is terrific. You know, he, we spent a ton of time on execution at the end of practice and the guys would be ready to be done. I mean, it would be at that time, you know, three, three and a half hours in to practice and everyone's ready to move on. But he would make those guys execute plays after plays after plays. And the reason I remember so well is because as one of the younger assistants, oftentimes I had to play defense (laughs) while those guys were 
working on their execution. And at that time, that was many, many years ago. I think he's kind of lightened up since then. But Keith was just brutal on the guys in terms of demanding a standard of excellence. And, you know, he, he went after them pretty good. And I'll tell you one thing that he did, Pete, that I think was genius is after practice, there was some repairing of relationships that, that needed to occur because of some of the things that were said during practice. But he, he did this. I think it was genius. He himself, and he made us do it as assistants, we would go in the locker room for about 10 minutes after practice, and he would just make sure as coaches we were interacting with the guys and trying to repair some of that stuff so that when they left the building, they were feeling a little bit better about, mostly about him, you know, because he was the one going after him. But I thought that was really smart on his part. So you had two stints, I believe, under Oliver Purnell, both at Dayton and at Clemson. Um, he's very different than Keith, very different than Billy Donovan, who you went to work with uh, at, at your next stop. Uh, Oliver obviously had a lot of success at both Dayton and at Clemson. What were some, some tenets you took from him from those stops, Shaka? Well, he was a phenomenal CEO as a coach, he had a great feel for everything that was going on in the program, and he was a terrific decision maker. Keith, uh, to some extent, Billy, uh, those guys are very impulsive. They make snap decisions, and they're good at it. Uh, Oliver was very, very good at thinking through everything he did, taking in all the information, uh, was phenomenal at taking feedback from players, from assistant coaches, and factoring that into his decisions. Uh, and he just, it seemed like he made all the right moves. I know that sounds generic, but when you're at a place like Clemson and you're trying to build the program back up, uh, he's a guy that does that incrementally. He wasn't trying to, you know, do it with one recruit. Uh, as he went, he made the right decisions you know, obviously there's always setbacks, but he did a great job building it over time. Your interview at Florida with Billy Donovan, I understand, was on a boat. <laughs> uh, it was not on a boat. It was close. It was, uh, it was on the coast. Uh, you know, Billy had a condo on the Atlantic side uh, of, uh, of Florida, and he, Billy loves to fish, so he would get over there whenever he could. It was also a place he would go to to get away and actually do a lot of work and a lot of thinking. Billy loves to take notes and, and to, to, to write things out. And so he had me meet him there. And there's a trainer that still works at the University of Florida in men's basketball named Duke Werner, uh, one of the best trainers I've ever had a chance to be around and, and, and meet. Just He's more like a coach. You know, he can do all the taping ankles and the, and the treatment, but – he thinks like a coach and almost like a sports psychologist. So Billy had Duke come over there, and those guys grilled me for, for a while that night. And uh, I think they – what almost cost me the job is I don't drink beer. So <laughs> that, almost, that almost got me. But somehow I got the job anyway. That was going to be my next question was how much beer was consumed <laughs> with, uh, with, with, Billy and, uh, with, with Billy and Duke. Um, you were obviously part of some successful runs with with Billy there at Florida. Maybe maybe one takeaway from uh, fr from him because you 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 joined there when it, it had become a little bit of a machine and, and really was rolling at a high level. Well, when I got there, Pete, actually, 
we were trying to, Billy was trying to build the program back up. He had won the back-to-back national championships and then just lost a ton of guys, obviously, after that second championship. And then I, I was a, a, a couple years removed uh, from that. So uh, at that point, he had just a ridiculously powerful burning desire to get the program back to the point where he was competing for Final Fours. Uh, and obviously, I think it was three straight Elite Eights and then a Final Four after that. So he was successful in doing that. But, you know, the biggest thing I took for, from Billy uh, as a coach was just a, a, a way of looking at the game where the mind and the psychological and emotional component of the game always precedes whatever happens physically. And that that was, for me, one of the big benefits of getting a chance to coach for him and, and be around him is just learning uh, some of those components. From there, Shock, you get the job at, at VCU. Uh, myself living in Boston have been able to watch that program. It's obviously now grown out of the uh, – of the CAA conference, but uh, you know, I always had a chance to o- over the years see the, see the great coaches come through there, and uh, really like the infrastructure in that program has has been fantastic, and it's it's not a it's not a secret why they've been so successful. They've made great hires and supported everyone. I, I'm wondering when when you got there, you really quickly stamped the uh, the havoc style and, and instilled that. I'm wondering how much of that was premeditated, how much of it was the style emerged. It, when when you look back at uh, at at I believe your six seasons there. Well, it's actually a long story, Pete. I'll tell you the shorter version. When I first got the job. I was kind of nervous about the press conference, uh, you know, like I'm sure a lot of first-time head coaches are. And I talked to a friend of mine, a guy that uh, I'd met while I was working with Billy named James Burrell, who's a sports psychologist down in Florida. And he said, the reason you're nervous is because you're focused on things outside of your control. He said, just change your goal to something that you can control. He said, why don't you make your goal for the press conference just to convey your level of excitement about being the head coach and about having the opportunity to coach those guys at VCU. And that was great advice. So one of the things I said is we're going to wreak havoc on our opponents. And there were some things that followed that. Uh, but it wasn't until about a month or two later, and your buddy Dave does deserve some credit for this. Dave Tellup was sitting with our staff. I still remember we were in our conference room, and we were talking about branding, and we were talking about – trying to separate our program in some way just from the masses of, uh, you know, whether you call it mid-major plus or, or whatever it was. And uh, we had written the word havoc on the board just because it was a term that I use in a press conference. And depending on if you ask Dave or you ask other guys that were there, <laughs> different people will take credit. But that's kind of how that became our, our thing. Did he copyright it? <laughs> He actually wanted us to do that, but we, we never really did. When you think back to the Final Four run in year two, you obviously uh, played Butler in Houston, I believe, if I'm not getting old and my memory doesn't serve me wrong. Uh, what about that run? You were the playing game, one of the first playing games, I believe, and, and went on – yeah, went on one of the you know just most dynamic runs, uh, just in the, the authoritative lay, way you won some of those early games. When you think back to that team and that run, what, what are some defining memories for you, Shaka? 
Well, I think for those guys, we had really had a tough month of February. That's what put us in a position where we may or may not make the NCAA tournament. We played well early in the year, had a great January, and then, you know, we were in a tough league. We finished fourth in our league, Pete, so that kind of gives you a sense of the the balance. Uh, But in the month of uh, February, we had a really challenging time as a team. Uh, my, My wife's father passed away that month uh my grandfather was really really sick uh so there was just there was a lot of stuff going on we were trying to keep the team you know afloat uh you know like a lot of coaches do with their teams late in the year Uh, but we really were able to get our guys to turn a page uh, to the postseason played very well in the CAA tournament Uh, we got the nod from the selection committee and when we did I still remember that night like it was yesterday. It was really for all of our players like a a new life. And they played uh, so much with nothing to lose. Every game, everyone picked against us. It only added fuel to the fire. But that only works, Pete, if you have confidence. And those guys did. If you remember, we had Joey Rodriguez was our point guard. And he's about five foot eight, but he acts like he's seven feet tall. We had some other older guys, a guy named Jamie Skeen, who had transferred from Wake Forest and was as talented as anyone we were going to play against. So it's just a matter of going out and playing well. And so we were able to go on a big run. All right. Well, at Texas basketball, in the, in the current and in the present right now, uh, you know, the biggest story this offseason has been Andrew Jones's. Uh, returned to campus, uh, come back from cancer. Uh, obviously, he's been given a uh, clean bill of health in the short terms, back working out with you guys. Just walk me through the, the, the arc of that whole story, Shaka. Obviously, people feel really good about it now. I, I can only imagine just how difficult it was for your team and your staff and Andrew and his family at the initial diagnosis. I'm wondering if you can walk me through uh, from the beginning of that story to where it is right now. Well, I mean, it happened so abruptly, and Andrew was coming back off of a wrist injury. He had broken his wrist, actually, at VCU. We had a game there in early December, and he came back to practice slightly after Christmas, but he just didn't have a lot of energy. And so at first we thought, well, maybe he just needs a few days to get his win back, even though he had only been out for a few weeks. Um, and he played a couple of days later. We played Kansas here at home. Uh, again, just didn't really have much wind to him. He couldn't get, couldn't get his energy going. Uh, then he played a few days later against Iowa State. We played on New Year's Day up there. Actually, he played really well. He hit a couple big threes to help us win that game in overtime, but still wasn't able to stay in the game very long at all. So at that point, we really knew – something's just not right and he got a blood test the next day and then a couple of days after that we got the results of the blood test and you know they they said right away that he, he needed to go to the hospital and ever since then he's done a phenomenal job of staying strong mentally and he's obviously been through a ton of twists and turns with his treatment and and all the things that go along with that so that's really been our, been our primary consideration is just you know, how is Andrew feeling? Where, where is he at in terms of his recovery from leukemia? And they've done a great job at the hospital MD Anderson, which is, uh, you know, a UT school uh, in Houston. And we're fortunate that, that Andrew was able to go there and receive treatment as, as, as good a treatment as he could have received anywhere in the world. 
Um, so the end of August was the end of that round of treatment, and he was given the opportunity to come back to school uh, by his doctor, and his doctor said in terms of his side of it, the oncology side, you know, he's cleared to play. Uh, obviously, with the basketball side, we didn't want to throw him all the way back to the Wolves because he's probably about 25 pounds uh, less than he was, 20, 25 pounds less than he was, um, you know, before this. And we want him to be able to gain strength and, and continue to recover. So he's doing a good job. He's taking classes. Um, he's involved in our workouts. He's you know, not necessarily able to do everything. But uh, his attitude's been phenomenal, and his teammates love having him back. That's awesome. Uh, give us a quick snapshot of, uh, of this team this year. You bring back uh, Osetkowski, obviously Roach Coleman, some really steady contributors from an NCAA tournament team last year that obviously lost a very difficult game to uh, Nevada in the first round in, uh, in Nashville. You have a five-man recruiting class coming in, which seems like a very, like, program stabilizing building block class of of of, of very good players uh just give me a little state of the union on the of the current Longhorns I'm really excited about our team Pete you know it's it's interesting a lot of the stuff in the preseason is done based off of recruiting uh and it's also more so like elite recruiting so last year we had Mo and you know a lot was made of that and he obviously was a terrific player and helped our team in a lot of ways but this is by far the, the, the best team we've had in terms of returning players. Um, if you take out my first year, just because really everybody's new <laughs> with the first year coach. So uh, we actually have, a, you know, three, four, five, six guys back that have a really, really good level of experience in Big 12 play. Obviously, as you know, those games are wars. Uh, Matt Coleman is back, so our point guard will not be a freshman. <laughs> That's a big positive. And then, as you mentioned, we have some new guys that we think will be able to come in and, and play significant roles, but not necessarily be guys that we count on to be our best player. I think when your best player is a freshman big, uh, that is a positive from the standpoint of having a great player, but there are some challenges that come along with that. I mean, you feel like, hey, we got to get this guy the ball uh, you, you try to center a lot of things around him. But sometimes, particularly early in the year, and then maybe at different points when you get to the dog days, those guys aren't always ready to shoulder everything that goes along with being the best player. I think Mo and then the year before Jared Allen did about as good of a job as they could, and obviously now they've been able to turn that into success at the next level. But uh, I like the fact that really our three, four best players – None of those guys are freshmen. So we did a micro State of the Union at Texas. Let's uh, transition to a macro State of the Union of the sport of college basketball right now. There uh, obviously is a federal basketball trial, the first of three that starts October 1st. Uh, that Justice Department investigation has been lingering over the sport. Um, you know, it's about 50 weeks ago, I think September 26th of last year is when that happened, and it's really uh, cast the sport in a different light nationally in a lot of ways. Uh, the Rice Commission has brought some changes. Uh, curious where you think college basketball is right now. It's a nice big open question for you. Well, it's interesting because there's the perception of where it is, Pete, and I know obviously in, in the media that's kind of what you what you have to deal with. But then, you know, as a basketball coach, we're here every day working with our guys. And 
in some ways, it's no different than when I was a graduate assistant at, at California, Pennsylvania. You know, our guys will come in in an hour and we'll have individual workouts and we'll get in the weight room and we'll work to get better. And we're trying to inch these guys forward, helping them understand that it's not all going to happen at once. So from that standpoint, nothing has changed in college basketball. I think most coaches would tell you that. Uh, the perception, the way our sport is viewed, the way coaches are viewed, certainly there's been lots of twists and turns. It's interesting, the vast, vast majority of us got into this business because two things, we love competing and being around the game, and then also we get a kick out of helping guys get better because when we were young, somebody did that for us. I told you about Bill Brown, who was really a father figure for me. That doesn't change um, depending on where you're coaching or what your salary is or you know what the media is saying about you. To be honest, if that changes, then it's time to do something else. And so really it's all about being able to kind of steady the ship while there's all this turbulence outside of the ship and around the sport and then make the right decisions uh, according to all the information that you have, which sometimes you don't have all the information, to push your program and move your program in the right direction. Obviously, at this level, guys want to go to the NBA, and it's our job to help them grow and improve and put them in the best position they can be in to do that. At the same time, we're trying to bring them all together to do something special that no one of them could do on their own. And so that's kind of the dichotomy of our job. And, again, that really hasn't changed. It's just the perception and the way we're viewed maybe has. A favorite and least favorite part of what the Rice Commission has come out with? Well, my favorite part actually didn't pass. Uh, you can't blame the Rice Commission for this because they recommended it, uh, but the conferences voted it down, and that was the opportunity to give two additional coaching staff members a chance to get on the floor. I just think that made all the sense in the world because – there are so many young guys in this business that are desperate to break into coaching and maybe they're able to get a job as a video coordinator or, or some other role beyond the three assistant coaches. But it's very, very hard. I remember when I was trying to get the job at Akron, I didn't have any Division I coaching experience. And I really just got lucky that Dan Hipsher, the coach at the time, believed Bill Brown, my college coach, that I could do it. But in lieu of that, it's hard for guys to get jobs. So this would have been terrific. So I hope that that comes back around and the conferences and the schools are willing to relook at that. I'll skip the least favorite part because you didn't seem like you wanted to answer it. <laughs> I, I don't know if, if I have necessarily a least favorite part. I, I'm intrigued and interested to see how things are going to play out with the changes that they made relative to agents. Uh, I, I don't really know. I know, you know, Texas, for instance, as a state, has very stringent laws uh, relative to agents. So, and obviously the, the, the law supersedes what the NCAA says. But uh, it's going to be interesting anytime that you try to differentiate guys based on how good they're going to be. It's a slippery slope because obviously there's the Kevin Durant of the world that everyone knew from 15 years of age and older was going to be an NBA All-Star. 
But there's also a lot of guys in our sport that bloom late. And those are the guys that's going to be really interesting to see how, how that gets handled. Well, we will end on a, on a lighter note. Uh, I know you're an avid reader. Uh, we talked a little bit about books uh, this July out in Vegas at one of, the, uh, one of the AAU tournaments. What is the best book maybe you've read this summer or recently or the self-improvement thing you did in the off-season that, uh, that, that, that carried with you, stuck with you, and maybe pass on to the audience? Oh, it's hard to think of one. I mean, I, Pete, I'm always trying to find something that uh, can, I can learn from, and I'm lucky I, I have a lot of people around me that, that send me ideas and thoughts. I'll I tell you, one book that I have not read yet, but I'm going to read uh, as soon as I get the chance. I, I've been listening uh, to this woman on podcasts, and I just think that she is is phenomenal. And I think there's a lot of carryover into what we do in sports. It's a woman by the name of Annie Duke. She's a former professional poker player and she was very successful playing poker. And she's most recently written a book uh, that I've ordered. I haven't read yet. I can't wait to read it. It's called Thinking in Bets. And it's basically about living your life uh, by making decisions based on probability and based on numbers uh, like they do in poker. Uh, but like I said, I, I've listened to her on a couple of podcasts, and I just think it's, it's fascinating, some of the stuff she says. One of the things you might be interested in is this concept she talks about called resulting. And it's, it's obviously prevalent in the media, but it's, it's what happens when after a game or after some type of result – we all pile on and say, oh, see, because the result was bad, the process was bad, or the play call was bad, or the coach was wrong. And the, the opposite of that, obviously, is when a result is good, uh, we, we look at the, at the play call or the process or the coach as a genius. And what she argues is that's a flawed way of thinking because we could have made the exact same call or the exact same process, and it might have resulted in, in a different outcome. Uh, so it's it's fascinating stuff to me, but that's one that I'm working on. Last question, then, other than the uh, Yahoo Sports College podcast, which I know you listen to religiously, um, is there maybe another podcast or two you'd uh, recommend to our audience? Well, Tim Ferriss is, uh, lives in Austin now. His is phenomenal, but that's almost wrong to recommend that one because everybody listens to that one. But it's, it's, it's terrific. Um, I really like uh, Rich Roll and Michael Gervais. Both of their podcasts are just about becoming the best version of yourself. And what they try to do is they bring in people that are trying to be the best they can be and, and some people that are very, very accomplished in their fields. Um, some of them have to do with sports. Some of them don't. Uh, but those are a couple I like to listen to. Very good. The footlong is on me next time, Shock. Appreciate you having me. <laughs> Five dollars. Thanks, man.